What up, peeps? Welcome into Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. I'm Jimmy Fox, and this episode is my sit-down with Liz Gately, Senior Advisor at Spotify. We got her, guys. We got her. I'm so grateful to Liz for giving me some time to go through all the great stories. We got to cover the classic MTV era that her and Tony DeSanto were at the forefront of. We're talking the origin story of Laguna Beach, The Hills, 16 and Pregnant, Jersey Shore. What a great era. Her seven and a half years at MTV, we covered all of it. We talked about when she moved on to produce, launching Diga with Tony, um, and out of that, having success producing Teen Wolf and Scream and starting a whole publishing business that I never even knew about. We talked about Lifetime and her being there for the launch and the development of Surviving R. Kelly, a massive success. Also, she won an Oscar, FYI. And now she's been at Spotify for two years, collaborations with DC Comics, Ava DuVernay, the Duplass brothers, big things happening at Spotify. It was fantastic to have her on the show. Here is my sit down with Liz Gately. I hope you enjoy it. All right, so recording from Gately headquarters, it is <laughs> Oscar winner Liz Gately. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me, Jimmy. This is Great the to be here. There are two firsts, two firsts here for the podcast. One, our first executive in the audio world, um, but also first Academy Award winner. So I'm kind of I'm kind of nervous coming into this, Liz. <laughs> Yeah, because I, yeah, I, I, you shouldn't be, um, <laughs> but I appreciate that. The Learning to Skateboard Oscar nomination was such a surprise. Um, that project started with just a speaker, Oliver Perkovich, coming to the Lifetime offices and um, Colleen Grogan and some Molly Thompson and other great nonfiction greats, Marissa Grasso being inspired and, and bringing it into my office. Yeah, and audio is 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 another great forum for nonfiction storytelling. So it's super exciting to transition into that space. What has the onboarding process been like for you? You know, coming from the traditional space like you had been. I mean, I think anyone that starts at Spotify, because especially I started in February nineteen when I closed my deal the day we did two business acquisitions of Parcast and Gimlet. So we immediately went, you know, almost doubled in size in the first year I was there. And, and now I think I was employee number 1900 and now we're at 6,000. So it was, wow. I just came in just saying like, I know nothing, teach me everything. Alex Bloomberg and Matt Lieber from Gimlet could not have been more generous. Max Cutler saying, what can we teach you about audio? They were all so um, welcoming. Yeah. And like, I've seen the, some of the big deals that have been announced and like, you know, you guys are doing a ton with the DC comics universe, correct? On Yes. Right. Yes. Original, original fictionalized storytelling and then obviously acquiring the ringer. And I'm like, I'm a huge ringer guy. Um, and that was a massive deal for, for Bill Simmons. It's, it's been really exciting. And obviously acquiring Gimlet, it just seems like Spotify right now is, is growing at a faster pace than any other Plat, call it platform slash studio I can I can think of in entertainment. 
Yeah, I think that's where the strategy that that kind of Daniel and Don Ostroff and Courtney Holt have implemented and many other talented people that are behind it, all the lawyers it took to do these deals, but was to buy really good companies, buy them in different spaces. So Gimlet's like the HBO, the Ringer's sports, mm-hmm. Parcast is crime and crime is crazy in audio. I mean, yeah. you know, I talked to a lot of the producers in nonfiction and television and to move over into that space. And then, you know, um, and then fiction is is still a relatively new medium, but we see the long tail of the IP behind it. And I think what's yep. also exciting is the serials and the the Dirty Johns and the nonfiction, uh, the dropout that are becoming scripted television. It's a really I, exciting time. I feel like I've been lucky that I've always seen, in terms of my career path, like kind of seen when the writing was on the wall and then leapt to the next lily pad at the right time. And um, and I really wanted to work in streaming. I was a huge fan of Spotify. I watch what my teenage kids do. And I'd never, I hadn't seen this much attention around a brand since the beginning of MTV when I was a teenager. So well, let's talk about that career path. I was doing my diligence. I didn't know that you went to law school. Let's- yeah. Let's start there. So was that the plan? I grew up in Minnesota till I was 10, moved to LA at that time. And I was so, I I would say that the mean girls of Palos Verdes inspired Laguna Beach. And I had arrested development for a very long time. Ended up going to UCLA when I was an economics business major I did one summer internship for a public relations firm. And I was like, these people are crazy. I do not want to work in entertainment. They're hot tempered. They're volatile. I do not want to work with these people. And so I went to law school out of UCLA. It was uh, 1990. There was a recession. I had like two job offers that I did not want to do. And I'd worked for my uncle in his law firm. And he said, you know, I really think you'd make a great lawyer. So I went to Loyola Law School, learned more in those three years than I learned my entire life of, you know, K through 12 and and, and UCLA combined. Um, mm-hmm. And love, love, love law school. Worked for the DA, the Rampart Division, where Marsh Clark was. Wow. And, yeah. Um, my third year did preliminary felony hearings and then Oh, you were doing that, that kind of law. Yeah, I worked for the DA as a extern my last year and um which is the same thing as an intern. They just call them externs. And I wanted to work for the DA. I loved it. Um I loved being in court. I loved um just it was so exciting and it was it was the, the Rampart division. It was, you know, loyal. That was the benefit of Loyola. It was the proximity to downtown LA. So, um, in 94, there was, if you remember, it was when Orange County was bankrupt, like the state of California was basically, it was a horrible recession and they had a hiring freeze. So I looked for a job, um, took a job for a corporate law firm in Orange County. Didn't love working in a law firm as much as I loved working at the DA. And I won this big motion for summary judgment against a farmer in Australia. And I was representing the big bad insurance company. 
And it was that moment where I was like, oh, I can't do this. Oh, wow. um, so I, when I moved to New York, I said, I'm going to, I took the bar and I passed it. So did a little bit of dabbling and, and I worked for Dean Silvers, who was a uh, film producer when I first got to New York and I was just doing contract law. And, um, I read the screenplay for flirting with disaster, which was an amazing movie with, um, Alan Alda and, um, Lily Tomlin, uh, with Ben Stiller going and looking for his adopt, his true adoptive parents. If you remember that. No, I, I don't know. I can't believe I don't know. I can't uh, believe I don't know this movie. You, you have to rent this movie tonight. Flirting with disaster. Okay. It's one of the most hilarious movies. <laughs> Patricia Arquette's in it. It's got an amazing cast, but I read the script and I was like, I think I want to do this. So I was interviewing at William Morris agency in New York and ended up over, you know, 13 interviews, uh, <laughs> and three months getting the job. And I remember one of the agents stopping me one day saying like, you look like the happiest mail cart pusher in the world. And I said, I, I, I am because I know I'm on the path to what I want to do. So it was a very roundabout way of getting into the entertainment industry, but I learned a lot. I worked in the talent department. I worked for David Kolodner at the time when Nancy Marchand and Michael Imperioli, um, Mark Anthony, um, mm. Alec Baldwin, Will Arnett, and Stephen Colbert and Steve Carell were like interviewing for, they, I was sending them in for auditions for commercials and they were little babies and would come by but, and Yeah, that's pre, that's pre-arrested yeah. development, Will Arnett, right? Oh, this is 96, 97. Yeah, so. yeah. Yeah. And Will had an amazing voice and, um, yeah, it was a comedy scene. It was James Dixon was still there. And James baby Dixon. James baby Dixon. And, yeah. you know, they have always had an amazing comedy department in New York, but, um, yeah. So was, like, like most yeah. agency jobs, was it there at the agency as like a young assistant that you kind of learned what you did and didn't want to do and what you wanted to focus on? Yeah. Working at William Morris gave me a great overview of the business. I floated between the literary group, TV lit, commercial before landing in the talent department, but I quickly learned that I probably wasn't the right disposition to be the person that would would deal with talent. Like I obviously, in all my jobs, I, I truly believe in talent but I wanted to be the rainmaker. I wanted to be the person kind of shaping the material and, and making it all happen. And I think it takes a real gift. Um, and I was listening to Rod Asa and I always complimented Rod at how amazing he was with talent. And we have some great stories of talent <laughs> moments together with Foxy Brown and, um, you know, so many, so many just great shows, Run's House, uh, working well, with what, Steph, what got, what, and Russell and all what, that, but he has a, he has a gift. Rod has a gift for talent. No, well, let's, let's, let's go there. How did you, how did you get from William Morris to the M MTV? Cause what I saw in the bio is that you entered MTV as a VP. So you yeah. must've gotten some experience pre MTV to arrive at that level, right? Yeah. Well, the crazy story is, so I went to work, Kara Stein, <clears throat> who was an agent at William Morris recommended me to Don Ostroff. Okay. To go work as her assistant. So I actually got my start in development in television working for Dawn. 
um, as her assistant. And she was head of programming, newly appointed at the New York office of Lifetime. And I kind of learned unscripted there, started as an assistant, did scripted as well, moved up to the up to manager, moved to LA. They promoted me out to LA and then worked for about six years there, um, overseeing, you know, we did everything from Bobby Flay's first cooking show to intimate portrait, which was their biography show. But I also worked with Alison Wallach in scripted. So she and I were running all over to table reads um, because we were doing we had two dramas and two comedies on the air at that time. So, so you spent six years at Lifetime pre-MTV. Yeah. I never yeah. knew that. And that's where the Dawn relationship came from. This is the same Dawn that is now at Spotify. Correct. And right. our we got married. Dawn and I got married the same summer. And we had kids around the same age. So we stayed really, really close throughout her journey to she left um, to go run then UPN and which became CW and she right. started CW and obviously tremendous success there. And while I moved on to work for Tony DeSanto. So Allison Wallach actually got the call from an agent for the job at MTV. And she said, I'm not ready to leave lifetime, but I will give you this amazing you know, person I work with resume and I'll, you know, I'll put her up for the job. And I ended up getting, getting the job for Tony DeSanto. It was about a year actually um, that I was interviewing with him because he had just been given, he was head of the production department and Brian Graydon had just given him the ability to start to make pilots of his own because the production department had, was just doing TRL spring break, New Year's Eve, um, VJ segments, and they weren't doing series. And Bob Cusbit had started to do some series with Tony, kind of backdoor piloting things over spring break. Boiling Points was actually um, piloted during spring break and a lot of other great shows. All right. So you, so you get the gig at MTV. You're now VP of development. This is, this is 03. This is June, June ish of 03. Right. Mm -hmm. And it, I'll, I'll, I'll brag for you. I mean, it starts uh, that era of MTV. It's a Hall of Fame era. I mean, you have Laguna Beach, the Hills, the city, but then you have 16 and Pregnant, Teen Mom, Jersey Shore, Ridiculousness, America's Best Dance Crew, Wild and Out, and many, many others. You guys also greenlight Teen Wolf under your under your watch, and you start this whole launch into scripted, along with Awkward, which was which was great as well. Um, I mean, that's a Hall of Fame run in that era of, of MTV and to really like contextualize it, look at MTV right now. Like look at MTV right now of what their biggest hits are. And it's a reboot of, you know, the Hills it's teen mom continues to thrive and any other spin off spinoffs that have come of that Jersey shore family vacations, which continue to do well. And ridiculousness is like 90% of the schedule when you turn on MTV and, <laughs> and there's like two different, uh, two different spinoffs of ridiculousness that have gone or are going, um, and Wild and Out continues to thrive. So it's like that era is still, I think for the most part, the top shows responsible for the top shows currently on MTV. It's an incredible legacy that you guys left behind. And again, I'm bragging for you. Oh, well, I would say, first of all, 
Thank you. The, the most important thing I can say about all of that is that it was all of the incredibly talented people that I got to collaborate with from Gary Auerbach and Adam DeVello. I mean, my team in 2003 that I Yeah, run me, me through the alumni of like, yeah. who was the so, family at that time? I was starting the production development group. And so Dave Srolnik was Tony's boss. Tony was my boss. And then I had Lisey Harrison and Adam DeVello as my team. And then I got to borrow Mark, Mike Powers from Tony DeBerry and, and Tim Healy's team when we were working on something together. And Made was just starting. So they were, they were launching Made when I got there, which was such a, a great show. But... Um, we, I kind of had to figure out, okay, how am I going to be competitive against, um, Jim Miller's group was still there and, and there was the news and docs group. And then there was Lois and Rod's group on the West coast. So my pitch to all the agents was that we could move faster and we could backdoor door pilot a lot of things because we were the production unit. So we had internal producers, we had the people, we could, we had the production management team so we could move really quickly on things. And I would say that, that we kind of, we were the studio. The reason we were so successful, I believe, I truly believe is because we were creating our own things, producing our own things and greenlighting our own things. And anyone who's a buyer or seller out there right now or for the past 10 years, post that magical era, I think can feel the pain of there's too much executive shuffling. There's too many changing agendas, too many, um, uh, changes along the way for there to be much new real risk-taking anymore. It's just so hard for producers. And, you know, I can say that cause I left MTV in 2011 and started my own production company and, um, it was just a magical time. I was having lunch with Chris Lynn and, uh, on Friday, and we were just saying like Judy McGrath, Tom Freston, all the people that kind of pushed the, 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 the suits away or kept them at bay from us so that we could make ridiculous shows. I mean, Andy Milanakis, if you <laughs> saw the pilot that we showed and I just, had the best time showing that pilot because I remember Jessica Samet, like little cute Jessica Samet, like laughing her ass off at Andy crying at a slice of ham going down a slide. I mean, it was just brilliant, like collaboration. I, we, for that pitch, we went into Jimmy Kimmel's office. Andy was there. He, the pitch was, it's a latchkey kid. It takes place all in my head. I'm going to wear the same shirt the whole time so we can cut anything together. And we bought it and we made it. We made a pilot. Like you just could not do that now. How old was Andy Milanakis when he sold that to you? He was 27 years old. He was 27. But yeah. for people that don't know, he was portraying a, a like tween age, teenage. Yeah. Like 14 kid. to 16 year old yeah. boy that, you know, came home after school every day. And it was just absurd that, you know, the, the, the mix of writing and reality and the talented people. I mean, Rob Anderson, like it, it was just, like I said, it was, it was the most amazing group of talented people that 
were highly creative and they were encouraged to disrupt and innovate. I think that that was, you know, when I pitched, so I, I was there about, you know, two months when I pitched Laguna Beach to Brian and it two was, months. it was just that thing. I was in the car with Mike Powers. We were meeting, I don't even know who we were meeting with, but we were driving around in LA and I had just watched the pilot of Made, and I was like, I grew up with those. And there was a scene where the the girl in the 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 uh, cheerleader, the drama geek that wanted to be the the cheerleader, be made into a cheerleader, has this hallway conversation with these popular girls, and they, when she showed she could be a a cheerleader, these girls were now nice to her that had been so mean to her at the beginning. And I thought, you know, that is something every. 15 or 16 year old girl can relate to. And I want to tap into, given my experience of moving to California, I want to, I, I moved to this beautiful aspirational oceanside community, Palos if anyone in LA knows, it's, it's just like Laguna Beach. I mean, it's cliffside mansions. Kids are left to their own devices almost every weekend because the parents are up at their ski house in Mammoth and, <laughs> We did a lot of damage, but I would say it was just this beautiful place, but the stakes were higher. The meanness was higher, the wealth, the, the cars, the, the cute boys. I mean, everything was just magnified. So when I pitched it to Brian, I said, we'll do it. We'll find seven kids. We didn't have them yet. This was also different about how magical it was and that you could just get a green light to go do a pilot without even having the cast back then. And he said, well, do you really think you're going to be able to find seven kids who are beautiful and interesting and, you know, all of those things? And I said, you know, have you, have you, how much time have you spent in Southern California <laughs> like right. by the beaches? Because Brian was from St. Louis, you know, and he, he, although he lived in LA and West Hollywood, I don't think he'd really been down to like Laguna and the beaches um, at that point because it was so early at his time there. And, um, was Laguna Beach, what, what, were there certain pockets that you guys were like, all right, let's, let's look in this high school, this high school and this high school. Was it always Orange County in your head? No, it actually, the pitch was the log line was, um, Beverly Hills 90210 meets Heather's meets Dawson's Creek. That was the log line. I actually still have the card that I took into the little <laughs> pilot screeners. Cause that was also the first pilot screening. We changed. Oh, wow. I caught the last Montauk um, debauchery of, of every year MTV would have an offsite and everyone would go take a look back at the year that they had just experienced. And then Paul DeBenedettis and, and Brian said, well, why don't we take all this money and put it towards pilots? So we started the three pilot screenings uh, a year, which became a lot of discussion around town when there was a pilot screening like did you get picked up did you not like how'd the screening go and you'd have 20 emails from all your producers at the end but well describe for me because because i was just so much i want to cover with you describe yeah. for me the moment where the tape comes in i know you would send like adam develo as your producer like out into the yeah. field there were a lot of conversations had to be had with like high schools and parents and all that but yeah describe for me the moment when you first watch the tape of Elsie. Right. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. And, and like you, you, you see the dynamic between Elsie and Lowe, you know, the, the first moment where you, you know, 
Like, you know, like, oh my God, like we've got a cast. Like, what was that moment for you? Yeah. I mean, Adam drove up and down the coast for, for several months. Um, Beverly Hills High said no. And then we found Laguna Beach and, and Gary and um, our casting director and Adam were, were down there. And then we greenlit the presentation and I, I was sitting in my office in New York. I was pregnant at the time, so I couldn't fly out for the shoot, but, um, Gary had hired Sham a bed and, you know, my whole thing, my Dawson's Creek reference was I wanted it to feel wistful. I wanted it to feel that bubble and I wanted it to feel scripted. I wanted it to feel like a primetime soap, like a 90210. So was the thought process in going school. into, the, was the thought process going into that to your, to your scripted um, vision in your head? Yeah. Was it, was it we're not going to have interview bites? Was that like an exactly. intentional thing from the beginning? Like we're not going to have, okay. Absolutely. Okay. So that wasn't beginning. a decision made in post. That was a decision headed no. into this. This It was headed into it. We shot eight scenes. We had a green light off of those eight scenes and we had no idea how we were going to make scenes connect. And so we had to create the pickup. I mean, we ap- we actually created the pickup in... Laguna because we were like, okay, well, this couple broke up. They didn't, our cameras weren't there. We gotta, we gotta have a, a pedicure scene, you know, like where. Oh, so when you say we, when you say we we created the pickup, you mean the actual action of getting a pickup scene. I I didn't know what you meant by that. Okay. I don't think, I mean, yeah, maybe I'm sure they did it on the Osbournes. I'm sure they picked some stuff up, but you know, Boona Murray was pretty true to the documentary right. style. They would not manipulate or ask someone to have a conversation to what I know. I, to, I, I didn't work on that show until to that point, later. To that point, as you're, you know, recruiting these kids, their kids, and you're talking to their parents, right? And you're talking to high school administrations and whatnot. And I know there was like a big, like school board meeting. Like I know, I remember Adam covering some of it on the episode I did with him. (laughs) Like how much did you tell them it would feel scripted? Well, I want to clarify one thing. We wanted it to look scripted. Yeah. Okay. Guna, we shot over 10 months to get six episodes. So wow. 99%, first of all, I, I still stand by that all the dynamics and the hills and everything up until like, you know, maybe Kristen coming back was, that was all real stuff. We would yeah. ask people to have another conversation sure. about the one that we missed, but, you know, Audrina, Justin, Bobby, I mean, you don't know how many conversations <laughs> I had with Audrina, like Audrina, you just got to got to break it off sister. You know, (laughs) these kids were like my little, you know, nieces and the, all that stuff was real. But anyway, we, um, so we knew we wanted, you know, Gary and Sham created the long lens look and figured out, okay, well, how are we going to, we're not going to be able to just catch people walking into a scene. We're going to have to hold them, make sure their mics on, do a mic check and then say, okay, go in. And we're going to have to have our camera set, set up and they're going to need to know where they're going to sit. much like an actor would in a scene. So you would they block, you'd block with them, but right. You wouldn't script them. Yeah. And we, we really set it up so that they didn't have to do much. Like I always say, we, we kind of set the, 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 you know, it was all set up. So it was just natural for them. We didn't let them into, 
any of the storylines because they were the storylines. It was just right. what was going on. We just, Adam and the team and I and, and Gary would have a story meeting on Monday nights. And because I had lived being a teen girl, I knew, oh, we shouldn't shoot that on Thursday. Let's change our cameras over to this party. Something's going to go down there. I just know it because Jessica and Jason had been fighting and we would talk about where we were going to put the camera time. And then a lot of it would just be the reality of this person got in a huge fight. So we'd shift it over the weekend and the team, it was just a very well-oiled machine. Was we it- weren't scripted from the get-go. Run's house was more of that pre-script. Like, you know, we knew, okay, Diggy has a report card coming up. And so this, this, and this is going to happen. Was it hard for you? Because as you rose through the ranks at MTV, I mean, you come in as a VP, but you end up, you, you leave as the head of development EVP. You're overseeing both the LA and New York teams by the time you left, but you're still as a producer and as the creator of the Hills you're and Laguna beach, you're still entrenched in the lives of this cast, right? Because it, it started with you and, and that original team. So you're like rising through the ranks as a network executive at MTV and you've got a bunch of other shows going on, but you're still like super entrenched with like this cast and like their lives and what's happening in this show. Was that hard? Like as you, cause you, you start having more children, so to speak, with all the other <laughs> shows that you inherit, you know, running a, running a whole network slate, but yet you still are like super involved in, in the Hills throughout that run. Well, again, that was the gift of being able to, to work at MTV because it was such a well-oiled machine. And, and, and Adam really by season two or three of the Hills, he was, he was, he was off and running and I was, was, I was, yeah, that was his life. And he had left actually the conversation we had the evening of the wild and out pilot was him saying he wanted to, to, um, go off and get an overall deal. So I was like that night trying to convince Adam to stay as a staffer and and I knew Adam was just, his heart was in producing. And shortly thereafter, you know, he pitched the idea of following Lauren um, and to everyone's support to do the Hills. And that's where everyone was like, well, what about Kristen? And it was genius idea for him to say, you know, she's doing fashion school and Kristen's, I think was at USC. I can't remember where Kristen was at the time, but anyway, it was, Again, the very, very talented people, and we were of Lauren Dolgen, you know, mm-hmm. pitching 16 and pregnant. We were really, that was the hard part is I really did want to still be fully in every story meeting of the Hills. And, you know, I would go deep. I would say any good creative executive at a network knows you go really deep season one of a show and the pilot and then hopefully the team takes yeah. over and, you, you know, there are key points of casting and, um, you know, having worked on Project Runway, inheriting it at Lifetime in the 15th year of like, how do we reinvent at this point? There are key places that you check in. But I would say when we were starting 16 and Pregnant, that took a lot of my time because we were figuring out how to cast it without sending our casting directors their efficiency. Because we also... One thing Chris Lynn and I were talking about the other day is we had no resources. Mm. So we did 60 pilots a year for the price of 
you know, nothing. And it forced us to innovate the teen wolf pilot. We did, we didn't shoot the whole pilot. We had placeholders for the scenes. We shot a trailer at the end. So we really innovated ways, but 16 and pregnant. One of the things that was so tremendous about that show was, um, we brought in Morgan Freeman, who I'd worked right. with on the Hills, and I really fought for him. Because producer, knew, producer Morgan Freeman, not producer Morgan Freeman, not Shawshank not Redemption. Morgan that's Freeman, right. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Who really worked? And Brian Lazarus in Legal was our our lawyer, and Jessica Zalkind was casting. She put this amazing casting team together, and Lauren Dolgen really had a vision for the animation, and she. Um, Oh my gosh, what was the reference? The movie reference. Juno. Amazing movie. Juno, thank you. Her was her movie reference. So we really knew that animation was gonna be part of that. But I was it's very so funny. deeply I, I've, I've always felt that. Like I I've always felt that. I never had anybody confirm that, but I always thought, how much did Juno inspire 16 and Pregnant at 100%. MTV? And I always tell people in development meetings, I tell my own team, I'm like, hey guys, let's look at the movies coming out a year from now. And let's take a look at those we think are actually going to like shape the zeitgeist. I just never knew. I just never had anybody confirm that. I always thought that in my head. But I visually, I again, visually, the real inspiration was we started these, like when ratings were really in the, ten, in, in not doing well in, in about 2007, 2008, we really needed to reinvent. We were, we were, we were all kind of chasing our own success. And I would say um, you know, West Coast, East Coast, we were all we were all being asked to kind of do more of the same types of shows because, you know, everyone thinks, oh, there's just another cast of Laguna or there's just another, you know, we did Newport Harbor. So we were kind of chasing and, and reaching and we really needed to reinvent. So we did this offsite. A bunch of us got in a room and we just said, we need to start creating our own shows. And every Monday morning, we started a brainstorm just talking about what did you read over the weekend? And Lauren and I had a taping that night for America's Best Dance Crew. And we, I think we didn't get to this agenda item in the meeting on Monday morning, but she's like, hey, um, I noticed that Bristol Palin and, um, and Jamie Lynn Spears were back-to-back covers of Us Weekly at mm. Pregnant Teens. I think there's something going on where where teenagers are starting to keep their babies and like this conservative movement. This is well before the pregnancy pact. And I was like, yes, get it. And we'll call it 16 and pregnant because <laughs> 15 and pregnant, which was Kirsten Dunst's first adult movie role, not adult, like X-rated movie role, but post her child stardom um, it was her first, it was a lifetime movie, 15 and pregnant. And I remember Steve Warner, who was, um, the head of scheduling and he's like, it's always about the title. It's always about the title. So I said, we'll call it 16 and pregnant. I didn't think in a million years we'd ever be able to clear it. Cause there was a movie at lifetime called 15 and pregnant, <laughs> but we did. And we started literally casting it the next day. We Amazing. had a meeting and we figured out how to get um, cameras flown. We were the first people to like fly those little flip cams when flip cams were happening. Yep. And we asked the, the the cast members to do a series of questions. And oftentimes it was either their boyfriend or a significant other, or sometimes their mom taping it. And so you would get these layers and you could, you could really get a lot from that tap, um, those tapings. So that was also 
an innovation at the time because we had no resources. So we couldn't, we couldn't fly producers there. We were doing a, a pilot. Uh, and another iconic moment before we leave the MTV era, Sally on Salsano brings in Jersey Shore. It, in what what shape was that in? What 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 led to it? Had she found the cast, or had she just pitched the world of Jersey Shore? And you guys are like, yeah, here's some money. Go go find the kids. How did how did well, that come to be? I think everyone knows the true story of that. First of all, Drew Tappan and I had worked with with her on um, Tila Tequila, so <laughs> we knew. We knew Sally Young from a year before that, but then Shelly Tatro at VH1 had done the casting tape of, of, I forget what they were going to call it, but it was the casting reel that Brian, Brian's like, I think they're going to pass and not move forward because they have a lot of this kind of competition material. And Tony and I saw the tape and I was like, done. I mean, we saw... We saw Polly D. Wait, wait, what competition of what? You said they they, they were, were going to do a competition show. This was the era of the VH1, um, Abrego, Chris Abrego, lots of competition, elimination show, a lot of dating shows, da- dating shows, and they were going to do. I forget what the title was, um, but it was about. It was kind of going to be like a Bachelor with a date with like a guy from Jersey in the center of it dating lots of girls. I I didn't know. I didn't know this. I know. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm definitely, you know, in my age, probably conflating some facts here, but it was not a follow show in a house. It was a formatted show. Okay. And so we saw the casting tape, Brian brought it to us and he said, do you guys want to, you know, pursue this? And we said, Absolutely. I mean, I remember seeing there was a casting scene of Polly D talking about how much time he spends on his hair. And he had sprayed so much hairspray on his hair that the metal door, and only New Yorkers can appreciate this, that the metal door of your bathroom had bent, like was literally <laughs> burned off because of all the hairspray that he had put in his hair to create that, you know top effect. Um, and they were just so authentic and it was a really interesting time because, um, we were telling, you know, that was really when the audience started to self-program. And so uh, we, MTV, I always say was the first channel to kind of go through, uh, generation P like Paul, we called them because they were the first ones to use DVR. So repeats just dropped off repeat watching, which was our whole business model was to catch a marathon on a Saturday. And we had to create new programming that was going to be loud and zeitgeist. However, because we wanted to still woo advertisers, we were going out there with this ideological message that we were going to, you know, be a little more G and PG rated and then 16 and pregnant and um, Jersey Shore were what we offered up. And I remember sitting around a room and everyone saying like, well, we just did this upfront. How are we going to make this show work with Jersey Shore? I'm like, it's just a sitcom. Treat it like a sitcom, even though it wasn't made that way. It was, tr- I mean, the, all of that was just all real off the cuff, them living in a house. But in terms of how you market it, I'm like, 
Snooki and Jaywar are Lucy and Ethel. They are hilarious. But, you know, but, just treat th- them like characters. But there's a couple, I mean, there's a couple of things. Like what was great about that era, and just honestly, it's compliments to you guys, is that you didn't overthink it. Because essentially, it, what is the format yeah. of that show? What is the premise of that show? Well, what all, was really interesting about Jersey Shore is there was a long time where we couldn't put people in a house because there was that 80s house. There were a lot of, again, us chasing our own success with real world, with, right. with you know, the many generations before us, the success of real world. And there was basically a moratorium on no seven people in a house. Right. It, we just... It would not get through green light. Um, and it wasn't a hard and fast rule, but you, you had to have a pretty amazing concept. So to even put kids in a house and think it was going to be successful was at the time risk-taking, um, but it obviously worked and it was, well, it was yeah. loud and it marketed itself. And a lot of other pilots had been tried. Um, there was a there were a couple other things in that space that had been tried, but it was just the magic of that cast. But that's the thing. That that show could have easily been killed in internal MTV meetings just based off the premise of we're going to put seven strangers in a house that all yeah. just happen to be from this culture, right? And 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 people could have, like now, that would never happen now. Like now it would be like, well, are they all really friends? Do they all really stay in this summer house every year at the Jersey Shore? Like, would this be going on if the cameras weren't there? What's the why now? Like, that's the notes you would get now. Mm, but right. then it was like, these are just great kids. Can we just put them in a house and make TV magic? Like, right. the fact that you guys just let that happen ch- changes the course of reality TV forever. But I could have easily seen that getting killed in an internal meeting because they were strangers. And it and it was real world, but on the Jersey Shore. Credit to Brian and Sally, like, for knowing that there was something there that was yeah. like, not worth passing on altogether and, and gifting it to us, um, and over at MTV from VH1, but Sally Ann, I mean, there again, it was Sally Ann lived and breathed in that house. She innovated so many things. I mean, the kids didn't know it. She put cameras behind mirrors so that like the way she, she, not to catch them when they didn't know, you know, these were public rooms, but just to catch shots that they didn't know. So she did so many interesting things. And I remember, you know, visiting the house, just seeing the the heart she poured into every show. And her story was really interesting because she, I mean, I am proud that we gave her a shot because she had just left um, Michael Fleiss's company to start her own company. She was one of the few female only producers to start her own production company. So as a woman to help another woman. And I remember we did another show together and, and it didn't do so great. And me, and she was really upset and I called her and I just said, you know, Sally Ann, it's going to be okay. And, and if you know, Sally Ann, she was very, um, took it so personally that this one show didn't like after Jersey shore and all the success knock it out of the park. And it's like, you, you know, this stuff happens and I still love you and you're still an amazing producer. And she was just like, Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. Um, but she's, you know, it, again, working with the most talented people on the planet. Um, all is, right. So what, why I was successful. <laughs> all right. So let's, let's, let's move on. So you spend seven and a half years at MTV. You guys have the brilliant idea to reboot Teen Wolf. If you look at Teen Wolf, like the, the original movie, 
the way you guys thought to adapt that, like kind of coming off the heels of like Twilight and like werewolves are in vogue, like Teen Wolf had a legion of fans, right? It was a whole movement. So you, you guys had so much success, but you and Tony, after seven and a half years, decide to team up and leave and launch a production company, go on the producing side, which you at that point had not done yet, correct? So that was your first time being on the seller side, is correct. that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you, you launched Diga, continuing to produce Teen Wolf. You guys also get TV version of Scream on the air as well for MTV. And by the time you guys end up selling Diga to ITV, like three years, four years later, you'd gotten 12 series greenlit and you had started this whole like publishing side of the company, which I never knew, Liz. Like I was doing my research. I didn't realize like how many book deals like you had been at while. Well, we, that was all, I have to say, Tony was the idea person and then I would help execute. And that was a lot of like how it worked. Teen Wolf was his idea and he had this great idea of like, what if we created a book series about um, Frankenstein? And I was really, we had so many ideas and you, there just weren't enough places to sell them. And we saw then, this was when Reese Witherspoon was first buying book IP and Oprah was adapting. And we said, well, let's just back the timeline up a little bit. And instead of buying book rights, because we also bought Top of the Morning and adapted that into a movie for, for Lifetime about the, the fire, Matt Lauer and the, yeah. the, the, the debacle there before Reese bought the book, we had they didn't end up making it, but we, we created some book ideas and William Morris helped us package them with young writers. And, um, and we ended up getting a three book deal at Fywell and friends. And it was really fun. It was really, really great. Talk to me about the partnership between you and Tony. Like how did you guys as co-owners of the company, as business partners, like how did you balance each other in terms of the workload and complement each other? Cause I'm always fascinated by how people work in teams. Right. Well, I would say he's like my brother. And from the moment I got there at MTV, he had my back a thousand percent. It was so competitive and he just believed in me and believed in my ideas and always plus them and figured out, oh, if you want it to look scripted, we got to bring in this guy, Gary Auerbach. He's a film director but he knows, he knows youth culture. He just knew the right pieces to put in place and he knew the right people. So that partnership was magical and like nothing I've ever had since. Um, and will not probably never have since, um, we just were like the two pieces of the same brain and we mm-hmm. could finish each other's sentences and, um, could hang on long business trips. People always, thought I was his wife when we would go and fly across the country and check into the four seasons. And I'd be like, no, I'm actually an executive. (laughs) (laughs) I I'm his business partner. Um, but we, you know, and Ben really was integral. Ben Silverman was integral into seeding our company. I would say Ben really pushed us hard because he had been in the same position we had. And, um, pushed us really, really hard to, to, to sell, sell, sell. And I think we needed that push. Um, cause your ego, when you go from buyer to seller, your ego, the people that don't, don't call you back and the people who you think are your friends, 
people who end up helping you are oftentimes the ones that you least expect it. And I think there's a certain amount of ego when you go from being president and head of development and network and people not taking was, your calls. Most people did, but, but, um, you know, it's the third or fourth call they might, might not take. I'm so glad you went there though. I, I was going to ask you like, what did you love and hate about going to the producing side? Because you, you just said it, like you're going from running a, running a place and being the decision maker. And now you're just chasing, chasing, chasing all, all the time. And like you just said, people don't have to call you back, you know, somewhat of like a, a paradigm shift for you mentally and emotionally business-wise, like being on that side of the fence. So what did you love about it and what did you hate about it? Yeah, no, it was, it was, first of all, we didn't appreciate how much, you know, you have resource-wise at an MTV in terms of like George Cheeks, your head of business affairs. And we had amazing lawyers the whole time, but just again, like we, it was me and Tony and Mike kind of staring at each other for three weeks. Like, okay, (laughs) now what do we do? And we were really true to MTV. We didn't start a development slate before we left. And, and we wanted to be do right by van, uh, Toffler. And we stayed for an extra year because we had so much momentum going, but we did really start with, with not a totally empty, empty cupboard, but we, we started anew and it, it took a, a, a year to get, real projects developed, tape, the deals done, all of that. till we really sold stuff and, and people were good to us. I mean, um, Nancy Dubuque bought, uh, my life is a lifetime movie that I pitched to her over drinks. Eli Lair commissioned, uh, a, a, a presentation for us for a new version of housewives that ended up not going in a city that they ended up not pursuing, but like people were good to us. And I have to say that was, that was really nice. Well, you did what everybody hopes to do when you start a company, you ended up selling it to one of the majors, right? ITV, you guys have a, you have a four-year run there with, with Tony at Diga. And one thing I'm noticing, like, as I was doing my research, you guys had done uh, a while at Diga, you'd done Kesha, my, my crazy, beautiful mm-hmm. life. You had also, like you said, you had been part of the Brian Stelter book about the Matt Lauer storyline over there. And it was interesting. I was looking at that and I was thinking about how those two projects specifically might've informed like your state of mind of handling a story such as the R. Kelly story when you got to Lifetime. You know, you, you arrive at Lifetime after Diga, you're the head of programming and surviving R. Kelly was under your watch and 20 million people watched that in its first week. And you'd already kind of dealt with stories of of abuse as a storyteller on the on the producing side. I really want to know, like, when, when Surviving R. Kelly walks in the door at Lifetime, like, what what is the conversation? What what is coming into you, right? What what is being presented? That wasn't self developed, right? That wasn't in house, or was it? No, I have to give all credit to Bree Bryant, who I hired as my head of Unscripted, that she really came in, you know, you, you love it when, when your executives come in and they're like, drop everything and elbowing people out of the way to get into my office. And it's like, we have to do this. We have to do this. There was a Rolling Stone article. This has been going on for years and we have to do this. And this was, well, you know, this was right around the me too, but lifetime. I and mean, when I got there, we were starting broad focus mm-hmm. well before me too reckoning. We were aiming to hire 
80, you know, 80%. We had these high marks for, for wanting to hire more women behind the cameras, but Brie really was so passionate about that story. And growing up, you know, around the music business, you saw a lot of young women and women executives and shady situations. And so once I learned that there were two mothers whose daughters were still in our original title was the Colts of R. Kelly. Um, I was like, we have to do this. I don't care. Like, I don't care who I have to throw down with in terms of the, um, you know, how many hours, but the, the real struggle was doing six hours. Everyone was like, well, why can't we do this in two hours? But Brie really saw it as an active ongoing series where we might actually capture things, which we ended up doing. And I have to give again, Paul Buccieri and Digger and Rob uh, over at A&E credit um, for fighting for, for, for that. And Nancy, you know, Nancy was still there at the time. So, so was it really Brie reads the article, reads the Rolling Stone article and is like, let's go, let's go do something with this. Let's go. No, it was a, it was a pitch. Okay. It was was a a pitch. pitch. Yeah, it was a pitch, but she knew the story. Sure. And it was, you know, she said, I have the right producer director in mind. And so she hired, Dream Hampton. We wanted an authentic female voice in there to, to, to direct it. And I think Dream did such an amazing job and was also a producer on it. I had to put in the pack, the famous pack. The pack. Oh my God. <laughs> can we, the pack, can we talk about the pack process? <laughs> what is, you're, you're out, you're out now. You don't need to, you don't need to be sensitive to it. That pack process at A&E Networks, why does it take once a month for like legal stuff to get done. I, I've never understood it on the outside. It drives me nuts. Yeah. Did anybody I, explain I it to every, you? I think everyone, yeah, it was, it was, it was leftover from when the, they just did acquisitions. So it was the, I forget it's an acronym for something. It's like the profitability acquisition. It stands Periodically for acquire content. No, it's, it's like definitely, can't believe I, I'm forgetting the acronym of pro prolong program action. acquisition something, but it was, it was program acquisition, something. It was just a, it was just a financial, like we're going to buy this show that's been, I don't know, in Canada or somewhere else on another network for 15 years, like unsolved mysteries. Right. We're going to spend this much and this is how much we think we're going to make off of it, which which works when you know what the show is, you know what its prior yeah. run is. But, um, but yeah, but you, if you really needed something greenlit in between packs, you could like, the, yeah, you, you, the, the scripted series, you, I got greenlit between packs and then that was kind of, that was, that was difficult, but um, we got it that done. Ha- it helps when you have heavyweight partners, uh, yes. like, like, like on you to push yeah. something. I love that it takes that high level <laughs> of a project to get something faster through the pack process. Right. That's, that's well, sometimes people just needed more answers. Like, well, anytime you're trying to green light something, I think like the Friday after Labor Day weekend, the pack comes around, you know, it was one of those situations where people just needed another week to gather information. And it was there, it was there at Lifetime where like we referenced at the top of the show, we're learning the skateboard in a war zone. 
if your girl gets brought in, right? And yeah, and that, uh, that was so, actually the the first two three months I was there. We I had that in my vision deck that I presented to the board that we were going to do more serious documentaries, and we did a with Molly Thompson. I did a series of them. We did one on um, a group of cheerleaders in the seventies who um, posed for Playboy and all got fired for the San Diego. Um, organization and, and, and we're very still hurt by kind of like the slut shaming that went on, but learning to skateboard was the one that caught fire. And that one was truly the right place, right time. But we went through three, two or three directors who it started in 2015. And because of the election in 2016, the, the traveling to anywhere abroad was more dangerous and and harder to get to. So mm. it took essentially five years to make that movie. And it was a 20 minute documentary, but Carol Dysinger did an amazing job. And was this, uh, the, was this the 2020 Academy Awards? So was this? Yes. So, it was the ugh. their parasite one. So I will always, I was, it was so amazing to, and it, but were you in person? Were you, were you able to attend? Was this pre-pandemic? Yes, this is pre-pandemic. Like, Two weeks before the shutdown, before, okay. you know, it was February 7th of 2020. Oh, so you actually got your Oscars night experience. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We walked the carpet. We went to the Vanity Fair party with you, with, you know, with the Oscars. We were like, it okay. was it was incredible. All right. So give me, because so you, you guys win. I, I should explain for the audience. So it wins for best doc, short subject. Give right. me... Give me like the best anecdote from that, from that night, from Oscar night. Like who was like, you know, did you see George Clooney on your way to the bathroom? You- <laughs> um, you know, what is so special about the Oscars that I think is a little bit different from the Emmys is you go to the Emmys and everyone's, you know, you've got HBO up against Netflix and everyone's a little competitive. Mm-hmm. I would say the magical part of the Oscars is it's truly a celebration of art mm-hmm. and nobody's competitive that night. And everyone at that Vanity Fair party is just hanging out and hugging each other and celebrating whether they won or not. And I don't know that I've ever felt that at the Emmys, but maybe it's because I was always working for a network. So I felt that competitiveness and I didn't. I wasn't, you know, at one of the studios. So, um, but it was, it was, it was, it was a, it was a great night. I mean, I, I don't know that I have any particular like crazy anecdote, except for I, I haven't ever, the moment we won and they said the name, I literally stood up and screamed and I did almost faint. I mean, <laughs> you do. That is a moment where you're like, this is a dream and this can't be happening. And you're, 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 and the, the, the higher ground people were right in front of us and they had just won. And so you're like high-fiving them and they're high-fiving you and everyone kind of knows that you won. So did you go up on stage? No, Carol and Elena went on stage. Only, only two people. Right. 
they they they, they, they cut the numbers for the uh the <laughs> the docs, the yeah. for those nonfiction right. people. Right. The green, exactly. Yeah. Parasite or Green Book, they can have a hundred people on stage. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But it was a great year to to win and there were no wrong envelope openings or anything like that. So and Parasite won, which was so great to have the first foreign film win for 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 best picture. So, so as we wrap things up, I mean, now from your purview at Spotify, you know, having been there two years, you're, you're a senior advisor to them. You, you've been there at the, you know, at the beginning of like their original content, you know, boom. Like what is, what is next for Spotify in terms of like branching out? Where does it go for like the next few years in terms of continuing to work with high level storytellers? Like what are the trends you're seeing? Like what direction is it headed? Well, I think live is super exciting for us right now. We just oh. acquired Locker Room, and which we're rebranding as the Green Room, which will launch this summer. But obviously for live sports and with Clubhouse coming on the scene, live audio is going to be great. I think that format innovation is also something that Spotify has um has innovated in. So your daily drive, mixing people's personalized playlists in with three or four minutes, short segments of personalized podcast content. That's where I think Spotify will continue to innovate. And then I think program acquisition, you know, the, the Joe Rogan and that we just acquired announced Duck Shepherds coming over. Mm. I think with 2 million podcasters out there, um, we're going to be making, you know, big swings, uh, and, um, the challenge is really discovery is how do you get the right things in front of people? So we have a, a lot of really talented algorithm code writers, um, and marketing people figuring out how to, you know, we serve Jimmy up the perfect podcast, new podcast for discovery right. of new stuff when you open your, your, your platform and still service music properly. So, um, but it's, I always say to people, it's just so nice to work after working cable television for 20 years. It's so nice to work, you know, where the growth charts are going up and <laughs> the numbers are going up and the, the companies in growth mode, um, is, it's, it's yeah. a much different place to be <laughs> than, than we've all been in, in kind of cable television. And I think now as painful as this process is of all of these, companies go, going over to streaming and Warner Brothers and Discovery combining. Um, once that dust settles, it's going to be great for everybody because there's going to be amazing on-demand content. And it's still great to see, you know, Mayor of Easttown um, do well, rolling out in the undoing, waiting for episodes to drop once a week. So challenging the 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 drop with with weekly programming. So there's still buzzworthy moments. I think, I think that's what makes me sad. And I talked to Juliet Littman at the ringers. She does all the culture shows yeah. and the bachelor nation is like, how do you create, how do you create a show around, um, Bravo or Netflix programming? It's more so with, with Netflix when people are watching things at different times, there's not that water cooler moment. And I remember, walking in 2005 on a JetBlue flight across the country because I had a toddler and I was walking up and down the aisle trying to ease her 
from crying and seeing literally every television on Laguna Beach watching on <laughs> Saturday. And like, it was just so cool. And I couldn't say like, I made that <laughs> in the middle of the flight. But, um, you know, no one will have that moment anymore because mm. somebody will be watching on their phone, something else, somebody will be watching the American in flight and, um, everyone's watching their, yeah, they want that to. era. That era of the monoculture, right? As I've heard it coined, is 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 kind of behind us. At this right, point. right. So it's great to see when something like that does happen with a big, a big unscripted project or fire festival doc, and everyone's buzzing about it. I love those moments still. Or you know, the Friends special that right. was really well done. Liz, thanks so much for doing this. Was this okay? This is great, Jimmy. So fun to hang with you for an hour. Thank you. I know. Thanks for being such a good sport. I appreciate you uh, fitting me in. I know how crazy you are over there. No, I appreciate it. I, I, uh, I look forward to listening to it. All right. I'll talk to you later. On Spotify. Have, <laughs> on, it, it is on Spotify. I somehow figured that, that out. It's on Spotify, so that's good. And wherever you listen to your podcast. That, too, that as well. But actually, I can't, I can't confirm that because it's just my little rinky-dink podcast. So I don't okay, know if good. it's everywhere. Well, let's just send everyone to Spotify. It's then. a handful. So just send it to Spotify. <laughs> yeah, it's a handful of places. I don't know. I'm still figuring it of out. Of course. But thanks for doing this. The best. All right. Thanks, Jimmy. Take thanks, care. Liz. Bye. Bye.